0: Welcome to the World Exposé podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. We're joined by Dr. Ainsley Elbra, a lecturer at the University of Sydney in the field of international political economy. She is the author of Governing African Gold Mining, Private Governance, and the Resource Curse. Dr. Elbra, thanks a lot for being here.
1: No worries. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So the Resource Curse, by definition, is the paradox that countries with an abundance of natural resources tend to have less economic growth, less democracy, and worse development outcomes in countries with fewer natural resources. What are the main causes that give rise to this phenomenon?
1: The easiest way to think about it, I think, is to split them into two kind of main drivers. So one is economic and one is political economy. So if we think about what happens to an economy when you get sector that dominates both trade, exports, uh, but also internally in terms of the way that countries think about their identity is that we tend to favour that industry. So people want to work there, governments favour investment and infrastructure around mine sites or whatever it happens to be. But it also, states end up exporting, um, so if it's commodities, whether it's agricultural commodities or mining commodities, they end up exporting low-value goods and then importing consumer goods as the country gets richer. So this worsens their terms of trade. It appreciates the currency, which can damage other sectors. So they're trying to compete again within this framework of this really dominating wealthy sector. And it just causes all sorts of economic distortions in that sense. But I think the more obvious ones that people think of straight away are the political effects, the political economy effects. So we call these sorts of states rentier states. Basically, the politics and the decision making is distorted again by this kind of excess profit that the mining sector brings. So in its most innocent form, it's that all of a sudden governments have huge budgets that they need to spend. So they might invest in infrastructure projects that turn out to be white elephants or, um, you know, not the best use of resources more sinister outcomes are that you know you can we end up with conflict over mining resources the regions that produce the minerals feel aggrieved that they're not receiving as much as they feel they should you get increases in corruption all sorts of perverse outcomes from this i guess sudden influx of income that doesn't necessarily last a long time either so if it's if the windfall is lost you know it can be a huge wasted opportunity for a developing state.
0: Botswana is the great exception to the resource curse paradox in Africa. What have they done differently? And are there any African nations replicating policies adopted by Botswana that have led to their phenomenal success?
1: Yeah, so Botswana is often held up as a, a success story, a mineral success story. Its success is genuine. It's, um you know, it's one of the wealthier states um, in sub-Saharan Africa if you look at the economy it's more diversified so it has a huge tourism sector. There's a few key factors I guess that allowed Botswana to do that and a big part of it is temporal. There, there isn't necessarily a way this could be replicated now so at the time that diamonds were discovered uh, in Botswana and beginning to be commercially mined in Botswana in the 1970s Botswana actually formed a partnership with De Beers. So instead of granting a mining license, they formed a joint venture company that the government is actually part of. It sits on the board. It has full transparency of Debswana is the name of the company, has full transparency of what Debswana is doing, uh, where its investments are, how much money it's making. Um, And it doesn't have to charge royalty rates or company taxes. It's actually a, a stakeholder in that company. So the government revenues are um, much firmer than they would be if you were trying to extract royalties or corporate taxes, which we know firms can avoid with some clever accounting. So there's a few different reasons why people say this worked. Uh, one of them is that there really is only one mineral, so it's only diamonds. You're not dealing with a plethora of companies. Beers controls the diamond industry, so it's a monopoly anyway. Um, some people also say because the population was homogenous, it was very easy for the leadership to bring everybody on board. It's not really homogenous. It's kind of an easy kind of classification that overlooks the fact that the population is slightly more diverse than that. But there were a bunch of kind of reasons that worked at that point in time. It's probably too late for most other countries. Most other countries have more diversified mineral deposits. So they might have diamonds, but they might also have copper and gold, um, which means they're dealing with a range of companies who come and go. The mines might be sold to a different firm. So you don't have this stability of a relationship that De Beers and Botswana, the Botswana government have had for the last 50 years or so. So it's, it is a success story. It does teach us some lessons, but unfortunately I don't think direct replication is possible really anymore.
0: Have any of the Sub-Saharan African nations you study, have, have they attempted to adopt similar approaches to Botswana in terms of government policy towards mining? I mean, no,
1: not really. I've studied in depth South Africa, Ghana and Tanzania. And so Ghana and South Africa have a, a lot, much longer historical mining industry. huge mining booms in in South Africa um, around the time of the Boer War. Uh, You know, Ghana was the Gold Coast before it was Ghana. So really, really long histories, which means they're already trading with colonisers, you know, visiting parties before that. They're forming partnerships or being invested in by foreign companies for a long time before this Botswana model comes up. Tanzania is is a newer player, but again, has a more diverse mineral base um, and has, has gold, but also has rubies, has diamonds. And So you've had a whole range of investors, companies come in and invest in those mines and that partnership model was never really pursued. It was more a foreign direct investment model, granting licences to those mining companies and then charging them royalties and corporate tax.
0: How has South Africa's gold mining industry developed in the last two decades?
1: Yeah, so South Africa is running out of accessible gold. That's one of the main challenges facing their industry is gold is now so deep, it's at such a depth that you can't actually safely have people mining for gold. So the industry itself is going through a real shedding of labour because increasingly if they're going to extract gold from those depths, A, the gold price has to be high enough to make it worthwhile and at the moment it it is back again at high levels because of COVID-19. But increasingly it's going to be mechanised You've got, yeah, you've still got strong, like a breakdown in the the tripartite agreement in South Africa between labour, between unions, private sector and the government. That's broken down as well. So the industry there, I, I would say, is in, if it's not in decline, it's certainly stagnating and the prospects of gold mining improving the livelihoods of South African citizens, particularly black South Africans and people of colour, is not optimistic. At the end of the day, that industry is still profitable in years to come. It's going to be largely profitable for shareholders, for those who have benefited from the transition to majority rule, um, which are largely upper-class citizens in South Africa, not those working in the mines.
0: How is Ghana and Tanzania's gold mining industry faring at the moment?
1: Yeah, so Ghana's a better, a better news story on that front. So the government and Anglo Gold Ashanti, which is actually part South African, part Ghanaian mine, mining company, have pretty decent relations. You know, they're able to extract some corporate tax and royalties out of those companies, the mines themselves. They've been mining gold in Ghana since at least the I think the 15th century so it's got a long history they've been trading outwardly with it it's a better news story certainly than South Africa and it will overtake South Africa at some stage to be the continent's largest producer if it hasn't already. Tanzania is is a younger has a much younger mining history and the main company that extracts gold there was african barrack gold which is now acacia gold and it has a lot of issues there and in png actually around human rights abuses around mine sites and its methods of dealing with those so there's been quite a number of cases of violence, sexual violence, physical violence around mine sites operated by African Barrett Gold, or subsequently Acacia. And they've used this kind of non, it's a non-legal grievance method or a non-jurisdictional grievance method, which means that instead of going through the court system, victims apply directly to the company through WITS program to receive compensation. But that particular program in both PNG and Tanzania has been fraught with all sorts of problems, including underpayment of compensation particularly compared with those who pursued legal compensation through the court system you know threats to people who are seeking recompense you know a poor appeals process so unfortunately for Tanzania the presence of acacia mining makes it difficult for that to be a you know a positive relationship given their history of operating mine sites and then dealing with subsequent problems Whenever there's a global crisis, you know we're living through you know the worst global crisis in yours in my lifetime. Um, Gold price is always going to increase, so those countries are benefiting at the moment from an increase in the gold price. And it presumably, you know, doesn't look like this is resolving itself anytime soon. So as long as the gold price stays up, then those mining companies are more active. They're keen to get the resources out of the ground at that particular price, and they may be more willing to cooperate with governments around things like taxes and and even things like human rights.
0: Could you tell us about the Pan-African Socialist vision of the 1970s and the effects it had on the mining industry and the economies of those nations?
1: Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. So about the time that... the the kind of independence wave sweeps through Africa. So the, the highest number of countries becoming independent is in 1960, but it lasts from the early 1950s through the 1970s, even later, obviously, for South Africa. So that kind of 1970s is the real high point of independence. And a lot of states, when they were moving to independence, really wanted to move away from this kind of exploitation colonial model. And so there was a real... Consistent theme across a lot of states of an of African socialism. So it, it's different to the communism that we knew. Um, we knew in the USSR. It's more of a communitarian kind of, it was called Jumama, um, which was in Swahili, which is it's an idea of extended family. This idea that you the nation supports each other, people within the nation support each other as an extended family, which obviously is the complete opposite of the way colonialism works, that paternalistic, someone comes in and, and exploits the state and the the people that live there um, and then takes the wealth elsewhere. So it was a real direct reaction to to colonisation. At the same time, there was two different pushes for pan-Africanism. One was to create a more formal federation of states, something like the United States or Australia or Canada, where you have a a system of states underneath one larger umbrella government. Um, And obviously that didn't come through. And what we have is the OAU and now the African Union, which is a form of cooperation but with a commitment to non-interference in each other's affairs. So there was a, a strong commitment to socialism in some states. Part of that was also geopolitical. So it meant aligning themselves with the USSR. And some of that starts well before independence when you've got rebel movements and independence movements that are formative or being supported by the USSR or the United States. So part of it's that, part of it is a direct reaction to colonialism, and then you get this Pan-African vision as well. What that meant for mining, particularly the, the African socialism, was as these states moved from colonial states to independent states, there was a big push for asset nationalisation. So to say, well, you know, we've got banks, mines, whatever it happens to be, you know, they belong to the state and the wealth from that should flow onto all the citizens except for that a lot of the mines in particular had been underinvested in. So as companies saw independence coming and knew the mine was going to be taken away from them, there was no incentive to invest in the mine, upkeep machinery, capital works, those kinds of things, or to train people on how to actually manage these mines. So what they these states were left with were underinvested, neglected mines and without the expertise to really rehabilitate or run them. Um, so... Combined with oil shocks and mineral shocks during the 1970s, it was just an unavoidable outcome that the mines were going to become even more worthless simply because they they didn't have the investment in them that was needed in the lead up to independence. Um, These governments are then trying to deal with oil shocks and commodity price shocks. So that volatility makes it really hard to manage, on top of which the technical expertise often had left along with the colonisers.
0: And was it the 1980s when that approach to mining and, and nationalism and a socialist approach to mining that that ended and they reopened to foreign companies or was it the 90s?
1: Yeah, depending on where you're looking at, 18, eight, 1980s, 1990s, it's usually whenever the state has to go to the IMF for a loan. So whenever that happened to be, you know, whichever state it happened to be, they go to the IMF and they say, look, our economy needs an injection of, of funds. We need, you know, big multilateral loans. And usually the conditionality that came with that was to open up the mining sector to private interests again.
0: How does private governance work in Africa and why do mining companies adopt this approach?
1: Private governance, I don't know, is so necessarily deliberate. Um, so I've written a lot about it in the sense that You know, mining firms and lots of other multinational firms, but mining firms in particular tend to make their own rules through these voluntary governance regimes. And one thing we kind of forget, I think, is that business likes rules. They like rules. They like stability. They like to know that the investment climate's not going to change, that, you know, corporate tax rates aren't going to change, that regulations and legislations around their activities aren't going to change. Um, and what I, the point I make in my book is not only do they like stability and rules, but they like the ones they make themselves even more. So we tend to see them sign up to or actively work in creating these voluntary governance standards. So things like the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which was developed states, companies, um, civil society, something like the Conflict-Free Gold Standard, um, which was really just the gold industry working on its own on that, or even just the large players in the gold industry. And there's a whole host of these sorts of voluntary governance initiatives and they they vary greatly in what they actually require firms to do, whether it's publicise what they pay governments in the case of the EITI or whether it's sign up to a loosely worded pledge, you know, which some of them are like that. They also vary in the oversight, the auditing, the publicly available information. Some of them are stronger than others, essentially. Some are, many are are window dressing or greenwashing or bluewashing, whatever we happen to be calling it. Whereas others... Again, I come back to the EITO probably because it's the strongest example. There actually was a desire by large mining firms or large oil firms to begin with to stamp out this sort of ad hoc corruption where governments would just say, well, if you want to keep that oil exploration license, you know, we'll need another whatever it is kind of dollar value. So some of them had good intentions. Some of them have less good intentions. Some of them are a response to civil society. So the Kimberley process was a genuine response to the blood diamond campaign um, and the damage that could have done to something like the diamond industry, which is largely hinged on a sentimental value that we attach to diamonds that in reality, they're not that different to other gemstones, but we've attached such a high sentimental value that that could have easily been lost if the uh, blood diamond campaign had been more successful and they hadn't responded so quickly.
0: In the case of gold mining, in your book you spoke about how private governance can lead to a shared sovereignty of mineral deposits in sub-Saharan African nations. Is that still very prevalent today?
1: Yeah, I mean I think at the end of the day, if you've got a company that can come in and I think in the I use in the book the example of the ISO standard around risk assessments. So If you have corporations that are able to implement their own rules and regulations and these become the accepted way of doing things, so much so that they actually get legislated into formal, you know, government rules, then at some stage we have to think that the sovereignty of those states is threatened by those multinational companies. If they're able to, you know, create these rules and they're taken so seriously and assumed to be such technical experts that they're the best placed people to make rules as opposed to the national legislature you know, there, there is certainly some questions around where sovereignty lies, and I make the argument in the book that in those cases, there is definitely shared sovereignty.
0: Your book and research has challenged the prevailing liberal economic thought, which suggests that multinational corporations continue to operate to the lowest possible standards, moving to where regulation is weakest and focusing solely on profit maximisation. What are the main examples and pieces of evidence that led to you formulating this opposing assessment?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's... There is a body of literature out there that suggests that, you know, when mining companies move to places of weaker governance and regulation and they bring their global operating standards with them, that they can lift the rules and regulations and other firms may follow them. I am slightly sceptical about that, though. So I talk about it in the book, but I'm, I'm sceptical that really mining firms are doing any more than risk management. And profit maximisation. So at the end of the day, you know, they're still focused on profit maximisation within the context of risk management. And every company and every leadership has a different view on risk management, just like every individual does. You know, how much scrutiny are they willing to to go under in terms of civil society. you know, Are they worried about that? Are their shareholders concerned about that? What kind of rules do their host governments have? so that is one of the drivers for them signing up to these agreements. So the conflict-free gold standard, for example, was a direct response to what had happened in the diamond industry around blood diamonds. This fear that the same thing could happen to gold. So it wasn't necessarily coming from a place where mining firms wanted to ensure that their operations were conflict-free. In fact, the final standard allows gold to be certified as conflict-free, even if it comes from a conflict zone, so long as the mining company says it doesn't contribute to conflict. You know, they're not necessarily concerned about the core issue. They're concerned about reputational damage that might come from being associated with that particular issue, whether it be mine site violence, pollution, corruption. All those sorts of things. I mean, the strongest one, and I keep coming back to it, is the EITI. I think, you know, that does lift the game. So, you know, companies didn't want to be paying unnecessary bribes. They didn't want to be caught up in bribery scandals. They were quite happy to push for this standard that forces them to publish what they pay governments and forces governments to publish what they receive so that civil society can, can match it up and see what the difference is. Ironically, in a lot of places where the discrepancies occur, civil society can't voice their concerns for fear of reprisals. So even it's not perfect. But, yeah, I think in some instances they can lift operating standards. You've got things like the International Cyanide Management Code. These sorts of kind of specific issue, private governance and issues, can lift behaviour. But they're particularly bad at dealing with local issues. So if we think about things like pollution from a particular mine site or a tailings dam or something like that, Violence around mine sites, we still know that goes on either encouraged by the firm or through private security that's employed by the firm. These global initiatives aren't very good at dealing with local problems, and that is one of the great disconnects between them.
0: How has the business ethos of mining companies in Africa changed from the 1970s? Milton Friedman's school of thought that, quote, businesses should have no responsibility beyond increasing profits for itself and its shareholders, end quote, to that which we have today in mining in Africa?
1: I would say not greatly. Um, I don't know that it's changed that much more besides kind of this idea again around risk and reputation. So it is, they're still focused in, you know, on increasing shareholder value, increasing, you know, by default, then increasing executive pay and remuneration usually. But they're also very, very, most firms, most globally operating firms are concerned about reputational risk. They're concerned about Potential, the example I gave with the diamond industry, for example, um, you know, potential industry wide reputational risks. So, when you speak to CEOs and vice presidents of large mining firms, they're often concerned about what they call the cowboys, but these smaller firms operating with less consideration about industry level risk. So, I think there's a bit more of a balance, but it doesn't necessarily come from, you know, The goodness of their heart, it comes from concerns around damage to reputation, damage to share price, you know, civil society scrutiny, shareholder activism, those sorts of things.
0: In all of your interviews with people high up in mining uh, multinationals in Africa, did you interview anybody who subsequently became a whistleblower?
1: No, I didn't. No, no, I interviewed one, one person who had left their mining firm. And so they were a bit looser around kind of they're all anonymous, so they're able to be a little bit looser around some of the, the details not being tied to a firm. But again, the companies that I was interviewing, I wouldn't say their, their practices would be at the level where you would have major whistleblowing events. It might be that perhaps... Some policies aren't being implemented properly in some places, but they're not the companies that were kind of known for the poor behaviour. Those companies were less willing to speak to me, less willing to speak to really the media or anyone. So the people I spoke to were largely concerned around that in a genuine way that meant, you know, we can't bring these companies on board with these standards and they keep operating the way they're operating. And we have this, you know, major pollution incident or whatever it happens to be, um, or human rights incident or whatever, Um, you know, it's going to damage our firm's reputation as well as theirs.
0: With China becoming a major player in the mining industry in Africa, does their approach differ wildly to that of Western corporations in terms of how they deal with issues of corporate social responsibility?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that many state-owned Chinese mining firms are concerned about corporate social responsibility. Um, You don't have, you know, if you think, if I keep saying the driver is reputational risk, that's not a major concern for a state-owned enterprise coming out of China there's certainly more secrecy around their operations right so we don't have reporting the way we do for western companies we don't have annual meetings that shareholders can attend and activists can attend probably less oversight and i think anecdotally we hear particularly so throughout the pacific here and then also in sub-saharan africa that there's less involvement or engagement with the community so less willingness to discuss issues that might you know influence a stakeholder you know the stakeholders around the mine site less employment of locals these sorts of things but i think we have to consider the operation of chinese mining firms in light of what we know about western mining firms too and that western mining firms all tended to come out of a history of colonization with this brief interlude where we have this nationalization we talked about you know it's a continuation of our involvement in the region which doesn't paint us in the best light doesn't reflect on what most of us would hope to be you know Good working conditions, the guarantee of human rights, non-pollution of people's groundwater and environment. The Chinese companies might be doing things more secretly, but what they're doing may be very similar to what Western firms and colonising countries had done in the past as well.
0: How can international institutions be more proactive in ensuring the resource curse does not
1: occur? Yeah, that's a, a tricky one. I mean, part of it is structural. So the resource curse literature kind of says that no matter what the firms do, when they arrive there, the sudden influx of foreign currency, this kind of resources boom in a country will distort the political and the economic within that state. There are some things, though, I guess that we've learned over time. One is that we should be more supportive of states taking an independent approach to policy making. So a lot of this IMF involvement was all around conditionality and prescribing what we saw as neoliberal best practice for these states would be to open up, privatise, deregulate to boost economic growth. And we know that didn't, it's not a one size fits all prescription and it didn't work in many cases. So a bit more freedom around policymaking, I think is on the agenda of those organisations now anyway, but it certainly is a lesson we learnt from the past. One of the other major problems that we face now is the practice of private mining firms or private firms of any sort being able to sue host state governments. So under most free trade agreements, whether they're bilateral or multilateral, there's what we call investor-state dispute settlement clauses, which actually allow private firms to sue governments when they change any kinds of regulation, whether it be around corporate tax rate, environmental regulation, whatever it happens to be. And so these sorts of clauses... Create huge structural inequalities that make it really difficult for developing states to, for example, green mining practices or increase the royalties they receive or clamp down on multinational tax avoidance because they're always under the threat of being sued by these large multinational firms. And one of the best examples of that, or one of the most striking examples of that, is there's a Canadian firm working in El Salvador or exploring for gold in El Salvador called Pacific Rim. And they applied for a mining license after locating what they thought was a sufficient amount of gold at the same time as the Salvadoran government and the public were seriously considering stepping back from their reliance on gold and silver mining and so they had agreed as a nation to stop granting gold mining licenses so they refused this company its gold mining license. Pacific Room actually sued them for that practice despite being a Canadian firm it wasn't a signatory to the trade agreement. It used a subsidiary in the US Cayman Islands to sue the El Salvadoran government or the Salvadoran government over this refusal to grant a mining license. Um, They ended up losing, the Pacific Room ended up losing the case, but it was a long drawn out case. It then took them a long time to pay the damages they were supposed to pay. And it really goes to show that even when a country like El Salvador is trying to have a serious national conversation about Sustainability, around climate change, around walking away from a commitment to this kind of energy intensive and politically and economically distorting industry, that they still are in fear of this private firm being able to use international agreements to sue them. So I think there's a lot of work to be done around that, a lot of awareness that needs to be raised about that. But like I said, I think conditionality and policy freedom has come a long way. So states have a lot more ability to implement policy that suits them.
0: What approach would you advise African nations to take and how they develop their mineral resources in partnership with foreign mining companies?
1: Yeah, look, I think that, as we talked about before, I think the Botswana, Debswana model is, it's thrown about a lot as a solution. And as I said, it's not directly replicable, but thinking about some of the things that have worked under that model. So whether or not you have one industry that's large enough that you can actually demand that you have a seat at the table you know, thinking about how you can push companies to agree to some of these stronger global governance standards before they start mining. But as I said, I mean, hanging over all of this is the ISDS cases I was talking about before. At the end of the day, multinational mining firms usually come from powerful states. And so, you know, once they're granted mining licenses, even though they've got sunk costs that are involved in extracting the minerals, they do hold a lot of power.
0: Dr. Albert, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast.
1: That's right. Thank you for having me, Lemon.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to tell your friends about it, and maybe give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.